Okay, so tonight we're talking about the deeds of Jesus, but since we did some of his miracles last time, today we're going to look at a sampling of his non-miraculous deeds. We're going to look, hopefully, at the triumphal entry, and then the cleansing of the temple, then the anointing of Jesus by Mary of Bethany, which isn't really one of Jesus' deeds, but anyway. And then maybe if we have time, I'd also like to look at, uh, really quickly, at the some of the controversies about paying taxes. Um, Okay, so that's the plan. And we'll start with the triumphal entry. Uh, So the triumphal entry appears in all four Gospels. But I want to look at Matthew's version of the story because it raises a special issue that we uh, ought to look at. So turn to Matthew chapter 21. And I'll read this uh, pericope starting right at verse 1. As they approached to Jerusalem, they being Jesus and his entourage, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay. That's Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. Let's talk about what we can say about this in terms of like historical evaluation. Well, first, there are a lot of things that can be said in favor of this event as being like a historically accurate account, uh, something that actually happened. Uh, So, for example, we have it, as I said, in all four Gospels, uh, which suggests that we have some independent attestation here because John, at least, seems to be using sources that are independent of the synoptics throughout his Gospel. So we've got independent attestation then to the triumphal entry. We also have um, some geography here that we can check on, and as it turns out, that geography is exactly right. So if you look at verse 1 again, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, etc. And uh, Mark actually adds, um, as they approached Bethphage and Bethany, so marking, uh, noting another kind of geographical reference. Now, if you look at the sort of the surrounding context in the Gospels, uh, it's clear that jo- Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from Jericho. So we know not only where he's going, but which way he's coming. And then we can ask, if you are approaching Jerusalem from that direction, would you come across Bethphage, Bethany, and the Mount of Olives? And the answer is, yes, you would. So Bethphage and Bethany, were they're kind of like the suburbs of Jerusalem. They're like these two tiny little villages that were very, very close to each other. 
on the outskirts of the city. Um, so the geography here is absolutely spot-on accurate. And that's valuable. Um, but more than that, the whole story here is kind of suffused with themes and symbols that seem to reflect its ostensible historical context, which make it look like uh, it really did come from where it's supposed to have come from. That, uh, so one is um, the crowds quote Psalm 118. And we know, as a matter of fact, that Psalm 118 was sung during Passover. So that's like a seasonally appropriate psalm to, for them to be making reference to, just like we have certain seasonal uh, music, like Christmas music and so on. Uh, and so that's interesting, uh, a kind of a neat little detail that is um, that fits really well with the ostensible historical context here. Also, according to Craig Keener, there are records of other people doing the kind of thing that Jesus did here, of riding into Jerusalem on an animal and sometimes even commandeering the animal for that purpose. So what Jesus does has precedent in that time and place. It's the sort of thing that we saw people doing. Um, even though, of course, it's not something that has precedent just anywhere, at any time, in any culture. Like, for example, not in our culture. Uh, so that's not a trivial point that, you know, it, that actually seems to fit. Um, and then also... Uh, Blomberg, although, I mean, I don't think he's the first person to note this, but Blomberg points out that Jesus seems to be almost deliberately uh, mirroring what the Roman prefect would do around the time of Passover. So when Passover came around, uh, the Roman prefect would come riding into the city on a horse surrounded by his soldiers, and they were in, the, in town to enforce peace during Passover because you get all these pilgrims coming in and it's just a complicated situation. Uh, but he would come in from the other side and approach the city from the opposite direction on a horse. And it looks like Jesus is kind of mirroring this and using it as a way of symbolizing, like, look, I am the Jewish king coming to the temple. And the crowds uh, receive him that way as well, right? We see what the crowds do in response to him, you know, with the palm fronds and things like that. They, all of that reflects the fact that they're taking this, they're taking this scene to be Jesus acting as the Messiah, as this new Jewish king coming to the temple. So the whole scene is loaded with symbolism that suits its time and place. And that's the kind of thing that historians look for when they want to know, is this you know, historical account accurate or not? Because that's something you could mess up if you were just making things up. And uh, it's something, it's just easier if you're, if you're actually telling the truth for your story to reflect what the conditions really were. Uh, okay, all of that can be said in favor of the historicity of this event. There's a, a criticism, that, though, that some people have raised against Matthew's account of the triumphal entry in particular that I think is worth talking about. And it has to do with the fact that Matthew mentions two animals, a donkey and its colt. None of the other Gospels mention two animals. Only Matthew does. And the charge is that Matthew has invented the second animal. A lot of people think that Matthew has just made up, you know, even if the triumphal entry happened more or less as the Gospels say it did, that Matthew has made up animal number two. And here's the argument. 
First, as I mentioned, Matthew's the only one who mentions that animal. Secondly, there's a clear theological motivation for Matthew to invent that animal. If you look at verses 4 and 5, we find Matthew quoting Zechariah 9.9 and claiming that Jesus, in some sense, fulfills this passage from Zechariah. So let me read that, verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, almost certainly... Zechariah was not imagining two animals. When he says donkey and then colt, full of a donkey, almost certainly he's just thinking of one animal and he's using a certain type of parallelism that was characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And he's just saying the same thing twice in two different ways. But the charge that critics level against Matthew is that it looks like maybe he's not understanding that. Maybe he's misreading Zechariah, taking Zechariah to be talking about two different animals, a donkey and a colt, and so invents the second animal so that Jesus will fit the prophecy, or at least what he takes to be a prophecy. So there's a clear theological motivation for Matthew to invent the second animal. And then finally, the upshot of this invention on Matthew's part is uh, absurd. In verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Critics say, look, Matthew seems to have Jesus somehow sitting astride two different animals riding into Jerusalem on these two donkeys at once. And of course, that's ridiculous. Well, anyway, nobody thinks that that really happened, or maybe some people do. But the critics say, okay, so it really looks like Matthew's made up this second animal. Clear theological motivation, only one who mentions it, and the resulting picture is something no one believes anyway. That's the argument. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, so I think that that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable for somebody to take this view of what's going on in the passage. I don't think it's the only reasonable view to take on what's going on in this passage. So let me give you an alternative on which it turns out to be the case that there really were two animals and that Matthew is telling you telling it like it is. So Matthew is a Jew. And we can tell that he knows his scriptures because he quotes them all the time in the gospel. And that's at least some reason to think that maybe he's not misinterpreting Zechariah, that maybe he wouldn't miss the parallelism in Zechariah. Because even if he doesn't have like a, a technical knowledge of like, you know, the different types of parallelism, I mean, I don't know if they even had this sorted out back then, if, or if that's just like something we do now. Uh, it, presumably he would have at least an intuitive sense of the way that parallelism was used in the poetry that he grew up hearing. And so there's some reason to doubt this idea that Matthew is just missing the parallelism in Zechariah. Okay, well then what is he doing? Well, here's a thought. Um, throughout the New Testament, and this is a notorious fact about the New Testament, the New Testament authors use the Old Testament in ways that, see, that look to us like they don't make a lot of sense. They tend to take Old Testament passages and not just leave them in their original context and use them the way the original Old Testament author intended. They tend rather to take Old Testament texts and kind of give them a new spin in light of later events. 
This is ubiquitous in the New Testament. And this raises all kinds of complicated theological and exegetical questions that I don't want to get into right now because it would take us too far astray. But let's just accept this as a datum, that in fact, the New Testament authors often give Old Testament passages a new spin in light of later events and leave all the questions that raises for another time. If that's true, here's a hypothesis that I think is reasonable, that Matthew is doing that here with Zechariah. That Matthew knows perfectly well Zechariah wasn't thinking of two different animals, but that Matthew, precisely because there really were two animals there, has been inspired to give this passage in Zechariah a new spin, kind of a new interpretation, and to sort of draw this parallel between something in Zechariah and something that he actually witnessed in real life. Okay, so there's an idea. Um, and it actually helps to, to explain why it is that only Matthew mentions the second animal. Because only Matthew gives Zechariah this weird new spin. John quotes Zechariah, but doesn't seem to be taking it in the way that I've suggested that Matthew is taking it. And Mark and Luke, if I remember correctly, don't quote Zechariah at all. So for John and Mark and Luke, they don't have the reason that Luke has to mention the second animal. For them, it was an extraneous detail. But for Matthew, uh, it wasn't. It was important to something he decided he wanted to do with Zechariah. So Matthew mentions the animal. Okay, okay, fine. But what about that verse 7 where we seem to have Jesus sitting on two animals at once? Well, look at that verse again. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Some commentators have pointed out that the verse is actually kind of ambiguous. That you could, you could read it as saying that the them which Jesus sat on was the animals, or you could read it as the them which Jesus sat on was the garments. So maybe it went something like this. The disciples threw garments over the animals, maybe two or three over each animal. And so the them is some of the garments, but just on one of the animals. And then furthermore, Blomberg suggests um, that actually the ambiguity is deliberate, that Matthew wants you to have that moment where you're like, wait, is he saying Jesus sat on both of the animals? Why? Because it calls to mind his new reading of Zechariah. He's kind of alluding back to that. He's trying to give you that picture. But at the same time, he's ambiguous about it, so he isn't committed to being like, oh, yeah, Jesus sat on two animals. He's not really saying that. He's just kind of speaking in a way that could call that to mind, even though that's not what happened and he isn't saying that's what happened. Okay, um, that's one way of trying to deal with the donkey problem, <laughs> I guess. Any thoughts about that? Yes, so if Jesus was only sitting on one of the animals, then the second animal becomes an extraneous detail in the eyes of the other gospel authors who weren't doing with Zechariah what Matthew was doing with Zechariah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's not making up the animal for the sake of the prophecy, but he is motivated by, you know, the, the connection between, yeah. Right, yeah, so specifically, the two animals inspired his new reading of the prophecy, which then inspired him to mention both animals when he wrote 
down the event, uh, talked about the event. Yeah, something like that. This proposal, by the way, is a mix of my own thoughts and the thoughts of other people like Blomberg and so on who've worked on this. So I've, I've inserted a little bit of my own ideas into there. So to use them at your own risk. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, and now I would like to talk about, <laughs> here's a doozy, the temple cleansing. We ready for this? So you don't have to go anywhere, actually. Um, if you just keep reading after the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, you'll find Matthew's account of the temple cleansing. So let's do that. Starting at verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And that's it. That's all Matthew says about the cleansing of the temple. And if you look in Mark and Luke, you'll get a similarly terse little account of the cleansing of the temple. But John has a more detailed account of the temple cleansing. So turn, if you will, to John chapter 2. And we will start in John chapter 2 at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, temple cleansing. First, let me make this point. Most scholars seem to agree that something like this event occurred. And here is the reason why. First, it satisfies the criterion of embarrassment. So, the early Christians would not want, have wanted to be viewed as anti-temple. They viewed themselves as Orthodox Jews. And if you look in the early chapters of the book of Acts, you find they even were meeting in the temple for a while. Um, so they didn't want to be viewed as anti-temple. And so it seems unlikely, other things being equal, that they would invent a story about Jesus that makes them look or makes Jesus look in some way anti-temple. So the criterion of embarrassment definitely comes into play here. This is not a story that's going to be super comfortable for them when they're trying to stay on good terms, which are already quite tenuous, with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. <coughs> Secondly, we have multiple attestation to this event, because once again, we have it in both the synoptics and independently in the Gospel of John. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about a controversy about whether or not John is actually narrating the same event that the synoptics are. 
whether there's really maybe two different temple cleansings here. But even if there are two, then we have multiple attestation to the fact that Jesus performed acts of this sort. Moreover, look at verses 18 and 19. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again. In three days. That little saying right there, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, is ubiquitous in our sources. E.P. Sanders has pointed out that it seems to be deeply embedded in traditions like oral traditions about Jesus that lie behind the Gospels because it shows up all over the place. For example, it shows up uh, the, it, it, usually in garbled form, by the way. So you get people quoting uh, something like this saying uh, when they're mocking Jesus and he's on the cross. It's brought up in the form of an accusation at his trial before the Sanhedrin. Lydia McGrew actually identifies this as an undesigned coincidence saying, look, the accusation is clearly not correctly quoting what Jesus said in John, but it's also clearly inspired by it. So it's like this indirect connection between the two. Um, anyway, so there are various places uh, throughout the Gospels, and it's also, it's even in Acts in one place, there are allusions to this saying of Jesus. And so um, it looks like he definitely said something like this. That seems pretty historically secure. Uh, and then look at what Jesus says in response in, in verse, or sorry, what the Jews say in response to Jesus in verse 20. Verse 20 says, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? So that 46th year thing, what's that about? It's sort of casually alluding to something that we can independently confirm, that the temple was under construction for decades, largely funded by Herod the Great, uh, but it, for decades, you know, there, were, there was work going on on this temple. And so this, you know, for 46 years, it took 46 years to build this temple. But not only that, that number that's just sort of casually, right? Like, they're not saying, like, we started building this temple in the year, blah, blah, blah. Just a casual, like, in the midst of a totally different story. That number allows us to pin down exactly when John is placing this event, and it turns out to be about the year 28 CE, which would have been near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what's neat about that is that that's also when John seems to depict the event happening relative to the other events in his gospel, which is why we're in chapter 2. Right after the wedding at Cana. Right after the wedding at Cana. So John places this event just, you know, by narrating the story in a certain way early in his ministry, mentions this passing comment about 46 years we've been building this temple, and it turns out that that pins it down right where John put it. And it interlocks with Luke. Luke chapter 3, very beginning, Luke tells you when he's introducing the, the ministry of John the Baptist, he tells you when this is happening. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 27 CE, which is absolutely spot-on perfect, because what do all the Gospels tell us? John's ministry came first, and Jesus started shortly thereafter. So now we've got John in 27, Jesus in 28, absolutely perfect. The chronology just fits together like a puzzle.
And all of this is just indirect. Like, there's, I mean, it doesn't look at all like Luke and John got together and tried to make this all fit, right? You don't get that impression from these passages at all. That's pretty neat. John's account of there being in the temple precincts, the people buying and selling and the money changers and the animals, all of that, by the way, is historically accurate, too. We we know that they um, there were money changers because only certain kinds of currency could be used in the temple, and there were tons, all kinds of currency in Palestine because it was so it was such a weird mix of cultures and things. Um, we archaeologists have found like a ramp that was used to get large livestock into the temple, and anyway, so that's kind of cool. Okay, so all of that can be said in favor of the historicity of this event, and again, most scholars seem to think that something like this happened. But it's also common for scholars to think that the event has been exaggerated and that at least one, uh, either John or the synoptics, has kind of gotten the chronology messed up in some way. Uh, And why is that? Well, here are the problems. First, walking into the temple and causing a disturbance is like walking into the White House and causing a disturbance. And so critics say, look, Jesus would have been arrested immediately if he had caused a big ruckus. And so this event must be exaggerated because he wasn't arrested immediately. Also, there's a chronological problem that you may have already noticed. When we looked at Matthew's version of the story... The temple cleansing took place after the triumphal entry, which would put it at the end of Jesus' ministry. And we just talked all about how John's version seems to put it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so a lot of people think that John, strangely, they think John has bungled it. Or perhaps that he's deliberately moved it and that he had, like, um, literary license to do so. That's another common view. I think that's not a very good view in light of the undesigned coincidences we just saw with Josephus and Luke involving the 46 years and whatnot. It looks to me like John knows what he's talking about and he's getting it exactly right. But suppose we say, oh, well, the synoptics, they they moved it. And one reason a lot of people want to say that John, rather than the synoptics, moved it is that a lot of people think that Jesus cleansing the temple actually was a big factor in his ultimately being arrested during Passover week. But if you move the temple cleansing to the beginning of his ministry, then that doesn't make sense anymore. You wouldn't arrest him like three years later. I mean, that would be kind of strange. So what are we going to do here? There's a guy named Richard Reynolds who has written an absolutely fabulous paper about this. He has a hypothesis about what's going on with the temple cleansing. It's a two-temple cleansings hypothesis. Some people hold this view. Some people think that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. This is going to be a version of that kind of a view. Let me tell you what Reynolds basically says here. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple, as described in the Gospel of John. At this point, the commerce inside the temple precincts was a new, or at least a relatively new, development. Moving the money changers and the people selling animals for sacrifices inside the temple precincts, that was new, having it in there. So, 
Reynolds suggests that the Jewish leadership at the time may very well have been open to the possibility that some prophet of God might come along and have something to say about this new development in temple operations, maybe approving or disapproving of it, and, you know, on behalf of God. And moreover, since we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the leadership in Jerusalem, they don't really know who Jesus is yet. Maybe they've heard of this rabbi from Nazareth. Maybe they haven't. Either way, they're not going to know a lot about him yet. This is a new guy who's just blown in from out of town, and they don't really know him. So what happens when this guy walks into the temple and makes a scene that seems to be kind of condemnatory of this new uh, commerce thing that they've put in the... Very reasonably, they might think, we better find out if this guy is speaking for God or not. We've got to find out if this is a true prophet. So what do they do? Well, John tells us. They go and they challenge him. They say, what sign can you show us to prove you have the authority to do these things? And Jesus gives them a sign, right? He says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And John puts in a parenthetical note saying, well, he was really talking about his body and alluding to the resurrection, but, you know, they didn't really understand that. They thought he was talking, understandably, they thought he was talking about the building that they were standing in. Um, but here's the thing. Reynolds suggests that this response, this sign, would have been deemed by the authorities and the onlookers, the authorities and the onlookers as inadequate. As, um, uh, because no one was going to tear down the temple to see if Jesus would rebuild it in three days, right? So um, Reynolds says, Jesus in failing to give a sign that was deemed adequate by the onlookers, would have been publicly shamed. So this is an honor-shame culture. And what uh, Reynolds thinks is going on here is that, you know, if Jesus goes in and, and you know, performs this temple cleansing act, he's kind of claiming a certain status of honor for himself, one which gives him the authority to do that kind of a thing. And when the authorities come and challenge him and say, Give us a sign to show that you have the authority to do these things. They're engaging in an honor-shame challenge. And when Jesus gave a sign that was deemed inadequate by the onlookers and the authorities, Jesus failed the challenge and was thereby publicly shamed. So, why didn't the Jewish authorities arrest him? Well, first, they wanted to make sure, is this guy a real prophet or not? And then secondly... Jesus ended up getting shamed when they went and challenged him. And so Reynolds suggests the thought might have been, okay, that's enough of a deterrent. He's not going to try to pull this again. He's just been publicly shamed. So that was the first half of Reynolds' story. Then Reynolds says, here's what happened next. Jesus comes back a couple of years later, end of his ministry, cleanses the temple again. This time he thinks that maybe Jesus was condemning the uh, Jerusalem authorities for failing to heed the message of the first temple cleansing. And you might think, well, this is the moment when the authorities should jump on Jesus and arrest him. Because now Jesus, um, well, he's already been shamed, and now it's become clear that that wasn't an effective deterrent. He came back and did it again. And they've already tried the whole, well, let's make sure, see if he's a prophet or not. And they were not satisfied with his sign. So you would think at this point, they would just run in and arrest him. But notice, they do arrest him, like three days later, 
Within days, they arrest him. Okay, fine, but why not immediately, you might ask? Why didn't they jump on him at once? He's, I mean, this is the middle of Passover, and he's causing a big disturbance in the temple. So the Gospels are actually explicit about why he wasn't arrested at once. He was popular. Because now we are at the far end of Jesus' ministry. We're not at the beginning anymore. Now he's got a bunch of fans. And as Patrick pointed out, we saw this with the triumphal entry, which just happened. Jesus has a lot of people on his side at this point. And the last thing that the Jewish and Roman authorities want at Passover is a mob. So they don't want to get a whole bunch of people upset and rioting. So... They can't just, or they feel like they can't just jump on Jesus and arrest him. They have to have, like, some really good justification or something to that effect. They're cautious. And notice that they're, and the, the Gospels are explicit about this. The synoptics say it was because of the crowds that they were afraid to arrest him. And notice when they finally do arrest him, the circumstances have changed in at least two important ways, uh, different than they were all week long up to that point. First, uh, Jesus stays out late. So if you look carefully at what's going on during Passover week before the Passover Seder, he keeps going out to Bethany every night. He leaves the city and he stays in Bethany and then he comes back in every morning. But on Thursday, he didn't do that. He only goes as far as Gethsemane and he stays in Gethsemane. So that's one change. He kind of stays out in public. Well, actually, apparently Gethsemane wasn't necessarily... A public garden, but um, he he stays out, you know, in a way that he had not in the previous nights. And another thing changes: Judas betrays him. Right? Judas uh, runs off on Thursday night and leads uh, the authorities to where Jesus is going to be hanging out. So now they know where to find him. They know he's going to be in Gethsemane. So they're able to take him by night uh, with the help of Judas and do it kind of quietly and under the cover of dark, right? Okay, so uh, that is Reynolds' hypothesis um, with maybe some other people's ideas thrown in, but I think Reynolds does say most of the things that I just said. Um, I think that's pretty good. I think that solves both problems really nicely, actually. Um, any questions about the cleansing of the temple? I th yeah, so I th think it's more like the second option there. That uh, not that they they thought, yeah, we probably shouldn't have this commerce in the temple precinct. Rather, just that they were aware that this was at least a potentially controversial yeah, it's a move. And... Yeah, so so it's definitely not the case that Jesus was the only person who was taken to be a miracle worker in around his time, um, because even among the in fact, I'm more confident about there being miracle, uh, alleged miracle workers among the Gentiles than among the Jews at that time. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a good point. Given the, the supposed like 400 years of silence, does it really make sense to think that they would be on the lookout for a prophet with signs? Yeah, it's a good question. All right, let's talk about the anointing. I want to talk about the anointing uh, now, having just talked about the temple cleansing, because it poses a similar problem in that we have accounts of it in all four Gospels, but one of the Gospels seems to put it in a totally different time and place than the other three. 
In this case, the outlier is Luke. But let's look first at John's account of this anointing in John chapter 12. And I'll start at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Uh, sorry, reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Okay, um, that's Matthew's account of the anointing. And if you look at, uh, sorry, that's John's account of the anointing. Did I say Matthew? All right, that's John's account of the anointing. If you look at Matthew and Mark, they kind of tell more or less the same story. It sounds really similar. But look at Luke's account, which is in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she, began, or then she wiped them with her hair, kissed him, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I have come into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has not been forgiven loves little. Oh, sorry. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The, others, uh, the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay. Luke's story is pretty different from that of the other three evangelists. The details are all pretty different. Well, sorry, they're not all pretty different. There's a lot of similarity, enough to make a lot of people think that Luke is talking about the same event as Matthew, Mark, and John are. But there are also a lot of differences. 
The objection that's raised against the woman is different in Luke than in the other three. Jesus' defense of her is different in Luke than in the other three, and so forth. But the biggest difference is the spatiotemporal location of the event. Uh, the uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all seem to put this event near uh, Passover week or during Passover week, and Jesus actually interprets the anointing as an anointing for his burial. He's getting ready to die. But Luke, if you kind of look around in the context, seems to be putting this event in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, and earlier in Jesus' ministry. So what's going on here? Well, again, there is the tactic of trying to say, well, Luke is really just talking about the same event that they are. A skeptical approach would be to say that Luke has a distorted version of the story. Maybe they all have distorted versions of the story. They all have a common ancestor. Um, a less skeptical view might try to harmonize them, might try to say, well, maybe Luke has just narrated this out of chronological order deliberately and that maybe that was permissible given the genre he's working with and maybe you could try to iron out some of the other differences in some way. I think there's a better solution. It's a version of the view that this event happened twice, just like in the case of the temple cleansing. Now the prima facie problem with the view that this event happened twice is that it seems like that would be rather an enormous coincidence because this is sort of an unusual event. And, you know, the proposal is like, well, wait a minute. So on two totally separate occasions in Jesus' life, a woman came to him during a dinner and uh, anointed him with perfume and then faced objections by the other dinner guests and then was defended by Jesus. That happened twice? That seems like a rather marvelous coincidence. So there's kind of a dilemma here, right? On the one hand, you could say they're the same event, but then the problem is all the differences between them. On the other hand, you could say they're different events, and then the problem is all the similarities between them. Seems like too big of a coincidence. There is a way between the horns of this dilemma, though. And it is to argue that although there are two different events here, their similarity is not a coincidence. The heart of the hypothesis is that it's the same woman on each occasion, and on the second occasion, she is deliberately reenacting the first occasion. So let me tell you, let me give you a detailed version of this hypothesis that's going to combine elements from two authors in two books that I think are absolutely phenomenal books, neither of which is about this. <laughs> this just comes up in both of them. Um, one of them is a book called Easter Enigma by John Wenham, which is an awesome book about, uh, like, uh, it's a harmony of the Easter accounts in the Gospels. Really, really awesome book. It was one of the most fun books to read. I love that book. The other book is Eleanor Stump's book on the problem of evil called Wandering in Darkness. She has a chapter where she exegetes the story of Mary of Bethany. And she has some really helpful things to say about this issue. So I'm going to tell a story that is kind of a hybrid of Wenham's and Stump's views. Incorporates the best of both of them, I think. Here's that story. The woman in Luke, who is left by Luke unnamed, is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, who we see in John. 
Moreover, she is also, although this isn't actually essential to the hypothesis, she's also Mary Magdalene. This is the same person as Mary Magdalene. When Jesus began his ministry and was mostly hanging around in Galilee, Mary Magdalene was not living at home in Bethany with her family. She had gone off to Galilee and was working as a prostitute in Magdala. So she was in Galilee at first when Jesus is traveling around. And we're told in Luke 8 that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. So here's what happened. This is a hypothesis, right? Um, After she was healed by Jesus, she was like, her life was changed by this. She was moved. She was grateful. So she crashed a dinner party just to be close to him. And her tears fell on his feet. And she started to get flustered. Oh, no, my tears are getting all over his feet. So she lets down her hair to kind of wipe the tears off. But that was an indecency in that culture. So she gets more flustered. And in her confusion, Wenham says, she pours the the perfume not on Jesus' head like you would normally do in an an anointing, but on his feet. And then tries to wipe that off with her hair. So it doesn't exactly go as planned. She's like, I'm going to anoint this guy who has just changed my life for the better. But it doesn't quite go as planned. She kind of messes it up. But Jesus takes the gesture for what it was intended to be, defends her against her critics, and tells her, go and sin no more. So she doesn't go back to being a prostitute in Magdala. She returns home to her family in Bethany. But that's not the last she sees of Jesus. She strikes up a friendship with Jesus. Uh, The whole family seems to be friends with them. And then eventually, her brother Lazarus gets sick. We remember this from the Gospel of John, right? She sends a message out to Jesus saying, Lazarus is sick. The one whom you love is sick, she, she calls him, right? So Jesus has become friends with this family, apparently. And she clearly, she's asking him to come and heal Lazarus. And you might remember how the story goes. Jesus delays, doesn't come right away, and Lazarus ends up dying before he gets there. Well, then Jesus arrives after Lazarus has been dead, I think, what is it, for four days or four nights, something like that is what it was. Um, And here's where Stump's uh, contribution comes into play. Stump exegetes that chapter, I think it's chapter 11 in John, and argues from clues in the text that Mary is hurt by the fact that Jesus didn't come in time to save Lazarus. The relationship between them has been damaged, and Mary Mary is hurt. And Jesus, you know, shows up and picks up on this, and, and so he, he goes to the tomb. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so, of course, at this point, you know, you can imagine that Mary is thrilled and, you know, and realizes, you know, probably this was Jesus' plan all along. And, you know, her being hurt by what he did, you know, maybe that was just a misunderstanding or a mistake. Um, So what is she going to do at this point? What can she do to express uh, you know, to, to reconcile herself to Jesus and to express her thankfulness and so on. Well, I mean, lots of options were available, but here's one. She could reenact 
that act of thankfulness that she performed when she first met Jesus. And maybe even try not to bungle it this time. So at the dinner party, Lazarus is there. She approaches the table and she pours the ointment. This time, uh, the perfume, whatever it is, this time she pours it over his head, which is what Matthew and Mark tell us. But of course, it's not just going to stay on his head, Blomberg points out. It's going to end up dripping all over him. And so he'll get some on his feet. And so in a deliberate attempt to mimic and reenact the earlier scene, she wets down her hair again and wipes the perfume that dripped onto his feet off of his feet, which we see in John. That's the story. That's uh, Eleanor Stump plus John Wenham. Uh, the, the reenacting part, is both of them say that. Only Stump talks about the connection with Lazarus. Only Wenham talks about, the, the, by the way, this was also Mary Magdalene and some of the other stuff about the, like, messing it up the first time. And anyway, I mean, you can go read for yourself who says what. But uh, I think, <laughs> once again, I think that's a pretty darn good story. That seems to, that explains a lot. And it resolves the problems. Okay. Uh, and it looks like we have some time to talk about taxes. Uh, okay, so let's have a look at... We'll go back to Matthew again, because... Why not? Um, 22, starting at verse 15. Familiar scene. Paying taxes to Caesar. You guys know this scene, right? Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to what, who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Just a few quick things about this historical evidence pertaining to this story. Um, Josephus confirms that there was an in-house dispute among the Jews about whether it was theologically and morally appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar. So, it makes sense that Jesus is challenged and asked about this. It was something people in that time and place were arguing about and worried about. It's also interesting that we see the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees here because they represent the two sides of the dispute. You've got the disciples of the Pharisees who would probably have been on the we're not so happy about paying taxes to Caesar side of the dispute. And you've got the Herodians who were presumably affiliated with the government and so would have been fans of people paying their taxes. So... Uh, that's, again, appropriate to the context, shows knowledge of the historical context, very believable detail. The coin, a denarius. Well, I mean, archaeologists dig these things up out of the ground. It's easy to check and see, yep, they've got Caesar's image on them and Caesar's inscription. But notice something else. Tim McGrew has pointed out something that, as he says, a lot of other people don't seem to notice about this story. So Jesus says, 
in verse 20, he asks them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? He doesn't just mention the image, right? He also mentions the inscription. And what's significant about this, according to McGrew, is that the inscription actually promoted emperor worship. Yeah. And so, in calling attention not only to Caesar's image, but the inscription on the coin, Jesus is appealing to the sensibilities of these Orthodox Pharisees who are going to start to now feel leery about the fact that these coins are violating the first commandment. So you shouldn't even be worried about holding on to them anyway, is the thought. Because this is, you know, this is dirty stuff, I guess. Uh, something like that. But that is not something that Matthew, he doesn't tell you what the inscription on the coin was. That wasn't important. It wasn't anything that was said in the conversation. He doesn't tell you in the text. That's just something that makes sense in the story once you have independent knowledge of this fact about the historical context. So it's a neat little, um, really an undesigned coincidence in this case between Matthew's text and archaeology. Um, so some people use the term undesigned coincidence in a really broad way that would include little explanatory connections between virtually any kind of evidence and the, the texts under scrutiny, the Gospels or Acts. Anyway, okay, that's an aside. All right, that was just a quick little thing about paying taxes to Caesar. I don't have anything else to say about that. Um, I want to, though, say something about, oh, this is another, this is one, okay, well, another one of my favorite stories, only because of all the little fun details I'm about to share with you. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of chapter 17, there's another taxes episode where Jesus is asked about paying taxes. But this time, it's not paying taxes to Caesar, it's the temple tax. You remember this scene? Uh, and this one actually is a miracle story, technically, so I guess we are talking about at least one miracle tonight. Starting at verse 24, Matthew 17. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and ask, asked, doesn't Pe your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect a duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you some cool things about this tiny little story. First of all, there was such a thing as the temple tax, and Matthew gets the price right. Two drachma per person. Uh, secondly, he also gets the time right in a way that's not even remotely explicit in the passage. Because if you read through the whole account, Matthew places this event between the trip to Caesarea Philippi, followed by the Transfiguration, on the one hand, and Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem, on the other hand. And he was going to Jerusalem for Passover. And as it turns out, the tax, the temple tax was collected a couple of weeks 
I think it's a couple of weeks, something like that, before Passover for people outside of Jerusalem, which is where they are here. They're in, in Capernaum. So he gets the timing exactly right as far as like when people would have been collecting this tax. That's pretty cool, especially since he, it's not like he just looked it up in an almanac because, first of all, they didn't have those. But secondly, he doesn't just say, like, it was the time for the tax collecting because it was, you know, the 15th of March. I think, by the way, it was the 15th of March. They just didn't call it March. Um, he just tells a story, and by looking at the surrounding story, you can kind of figure out when this happened. And it turns out that's exactly the right time. That's cool. Um, okay. The coin... Uh, that he finds in the fish's mouth. So the translation I was reading is the NIV translates it as a four drachma coin. Translates it that way because the coin he found was a coin that was worth four drachma. But in the Greek, it calls it by the name they actually used, which was a stator. And the importance of that is it's not obvious just from the terms that they used at the time and the language Matthew used in the gospel that the stator is worth four drachma. That's a piece of trivia that you might or might not know about the currency in that area. But Matthew gets it right because, as he says, it's a, you know, you'll find a stator and then you give it to them to pay the tax for you and for me, Jesus says, for Peter and Jesus. Two drachma each, four drachma, one stator. Perfect. That's cool. And then the coolest fact of all. Kind of a weird miracle, right? Like, Go cast a line and catch a fish and you'll find a coin in it. What? Kind of a weird idea. Turns out there is a species of fish in the Sea of Galilee that habitually swallows little shiny objects that fall in the water. And it's come to be called, one of its nicknames is St. Peter's Fish because of this story. <laughs> uh, and so it looks like probably what's going on here is, I mean, it's a miracle and it's a miracle because Jesus, you know, providentially, I guess, directs Peter to, you know, pull up a fish that happened to have swallowed one of these coins. But why a coin inside a fish? Because there were fish that were swimming around swallowing coins. It fits the, the historical context. So those are some thoughts about that temple tax scene that... Uh,